Well, go ahead and grab a seat, everybody, and grab your Bible. It is a great privilege for me tonight to ask you to open up your Bible back to Matthew chapter 16. If you could turn there, Matthew chapter 16. If you got one of our Bibles, it's on page 822. And we looked at who Jesus is. We had a great time on Sunday if you were able to join us for our first service in here. And tonight, after learning who Jesus is, he's the Christ, he's the Lord, he's the one with all authority over heaven and earth. Well, tonight we want to get into what Jesus did for us, the good news of the gospel. And I got good news for you tonight, and the good news is we won World War II. Is that still exciting to anybody? Hey, yeah. I mean, think about it for a second. We're not Nazis, you know what I'm saying? Is that good? Is anybody happy about that? You just haven't probably thought about that lately. Maybe you thought about it on December 7th, bombing of Pearl Harbor, right? Uh, maybe you would think about it on V-Day when we celebrate the victory. Uh, but have you really thought about World War II? I mean, that's, it's a huge deal, but it kind of just seems old now. What about, what about the fact that uh, we won the Revolutionary War? When was the last time you got jazzed about that, right? Instead of the British are coming, it's like the British are going back, you know? That's right, King George. No taxation without representation. That's right. Everybody get your white wig, throw it up in the air. That's what I'm talking about. Let's celebrate, right? That's affected everything about you. You're living in an Amer- America right now. The United States, right? Not England. See, it feels old. We're not really that excited about it, right? What if I took you back 2,000 years and I told you that there was a man who died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you new life, and he didn't just do this for one nation of America or or just the people that were alive at that time, but he did this for all people throughout all time so that they could be saved from their sins. You know, the truth is, a lot of times that seems pretty old to us. A lot of times the good news becomes old news And it seems like something that happened a long time ago on the other side of the world. And why should I be excited about it tonight? My goal is to help you realize that the good news is still good today. And it's something to marvel at. It's something to realize is wonderful and to sing about. And so read with me Matthew chapter 16 verses 21 to 23 as we get into the good news. Not old news, but news that is relevant to our lives right now and even for our life to come. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, just to review, Peter had just said, just back your eyeballs up to to verse The 16 here, where Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. The great revelation that He got from the Father. I know who You are. I see You. You are God. You are the Lord. That's what we talked about on Sunday. And and it's like, blessed are You, Simon, son of Jonah, right? And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And you think, wow, this guy Peter, pretty spiritual dude, right? Now... Fast forward a few verses. What are we calling Peter now, my friends? Well, what do we just refer to him now as? Oh. Well, that doesn't feel so good. Right? One minute you're like, yeah, look at me, everybody. Right answer on that question. Yeah, check it out. Then you start feeling a little overconfident. Whenever you find yourself rebuking Jesus, that might be a, a sign to just back it up a little bit. Right? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, whatever Peter says here is, is something we don't want to be a part of, right? I mean, the Messiah was the one who was going to reign forever and ever, and he was going to make the nation of Israel the biggest, baddest, best nation on the planet, and everybody else was going to be subject to them and worship this Messiah. And they say, we see you. You are that one. You are the Messiah. And he says, great, now that you guys know who I am, let's get to phase two of the plan. 
here's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to go back down to Jerusalem, and I'm going to have these chief priests, these scribes, these Pharisees, they're going to, you know they hate me, they're going to kill me, basically. I mean, I'm going to suffer at their hands. They're going to have authority over me. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. No self-respecting Jewish person wanted a Messiah who was going to die on a tree. And Peter hears this, and he says, far be it from you. He hears the gospel message, the blessed death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, never will that happen to you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. See, even with all the prophecies in the Old Testament, even with all that Jesus had taught them up to this point, they couldn't see the gospel coming. And so there's a clear break here. Look at verse 21. It says, from that time, if you could underline that, circle that, it's like we enter now a whole new phase in the gospel of Matthew. Like the first point of the Gospel of Matthew was, who do you say Jesus is? Okay, we've got that one. Here's the second point. What is Jesus going to do? And from this time on, Jesus has his face set towards Jerusalem, towards this conflict where he is going to suffer and die. And he begins to say it over and over, even though it seems no one is listening to him. Follow me through the Gospel of Matthew. Look over at chapter 17, verse 22. Just watch how many times Jesus begins to say this. Just across the page, Matthew 17, verse 22. The heading there, Jesus again foretells death, resurrection. Now they're back down in Galilee. So remember, they're way up north in Caesarea Philippi. They start to come back down into Galilee. And Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, a title for himself, the one who's going to come riding on the clouds. Well, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. How can these things be? How can the ruler of all be subject to men? And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. At least by this time, they realized not to question it because they didn't want to be called Satan again. So at least they got that, but they're still not getting what Jesus is saying. Look over at chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 17 Notice the heading here. Jesus foretells his death a third time. When something shows up three times, it's trying to make a point. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, so he was way up north in Caesarea Philippi. He told them he was going to die. In Galilee, the north, he's telling them he's going to die. Now he goes back down south to Jerusalem. And he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. I mean, this, it's bad enough the Jewish leaders are going to have authority over him. Now the Gentiles are going to have authority over the Messiah? Deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified the worst possible way that you could die. And he will be raised on the third day. I mean, Jesus, is, he's marching on a path towards his own death, and he's telling his disciples who don't seem to get it, but his face is set. This is his mission. This is what he came to do. Go to chapter 26. Chapter 26, and you'll see it here, that now it, it, it happens. And that's the climax of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's the climax of the whole history. Uh, the whole story of the Bible is... Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he taught all his teachings, he's performed all his miracles, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And look, like segue, verse 3, then, like right at that moment when he says it, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in a place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So we have this Messiah, this glorious Lord who's going to come riding on the clouds, this one that has authority over your soul. He gets to decide where you go when you die. We have this Lord of heaven and earth who now is telling us over and over and over again, I'm here so that men will judge me, beat me, and kill me, and I am here to die. And then on the third day, he keeps saying, I will rise again. And it's so hard for everybody to believe that the glorious Lord of heaven and earth, 
could be killed by men. But this is the message of the gospel. This is the good news. And I find that so many people today, when I ask them, what is the gospel? I'm not talking about people on the street. I'm talking about people at church. And I say, hey, can you tell me the gospel? So many people are confused about what it really is. If you could write down, if you're taking notes here tonight, if you could write down 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. It's a definition for us of the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus, the Christ, died for our sins and rose again. So the gospel has to have these essential three elements. You have to start with the right Jesus, who he is, that he is the Christ, and then you have to have him dying for sin, and you have to see that he rose again. This is the gospel message. And this message is a unique kind of good news. We all have good news in our life. We all have things that we will hold up hopefully as memories. I hope the day that you got married is a day that it stands out as good news. Right? I hope the day that your, your child was born is a day that stands out to you as good news. Are these good days? Is anybody here happily married in, in America today? Anybody here have kids and you're like actually glad that you have them? Do we have any of those kind of people here? Right? Uh, I would hope at church we could find a few of those people. Right? I mean, hopefully you have things that you can remember that are good, that bring joy to your life. But trust me, there is no good news that you can have that will affect you like this good news. This isn't something that happened in history. This is something that can happen to you. That's the good news of the gospel. Go with me to Romans chapter 6, and I want you to see this very clearly. What I want to talk to you about tonight as we look at this gospel message is I I just want to try to bring it into the present. And what I want to talk is about is your union with Christ. If you want to write that down, we're getting into soteriology. If anybody here is a Bible nerd, we talk about theology, the study of God. Well, soteriology is the study of salvation. How do people get saved? And one of the headings in soteriology is this idea of union with Christ. That at the moment of your salvation, you get placed into, sometimes we even say baptized, you get put into Jesus Christ. And you see that, one of the best passages on that is Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 3 with me. Look at verse 4. Look at the offer uh, of the gospel to everyone here tonight. To everyone everywhere, here's the offer. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, placed into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And it says to you there that you can experience the power of the gospel in your own soul. And I hope this has happened for you. I hope you, you could say amen to what I'm talking about, that there was a time where it's like you died to your old life, to your life of sin. Like John Carlson was saying a few minutes ago, he lived for himself. That's what his life, he knew he wasn't a Christian because it was about him. And then there was a day that he died to that, that his sin was over. And he rose again, it says, he walks in newness of life. Look at some of the phrases here, okay? Look at verse 3. It says, we were baptized into Christ Jesus. We're going to have a baptism service here on Sunday, our first baptism service in the history of our church. We're going to have a big tank right here, and we're going to dunk some people in water, right? And we've got five people who are going to get baptized. A few of them have been saved right here at this church since we've got started. Is that, is that exciting to anybody here tonight? That's going on this Sunday. One of, them, one of them got saved at our very first service of our church. And even this Sunday, our first service in the new building, I had somebody come forward after the service, and they said, you know, I thought I was a Christian my entire life, but I have never seen Jesus the way that I heard him preached here, and I want to I have faith in him. And I heard somebody pray right here in, in front of our stage to be saved, and they asked God to give them faith and give them a new life. So people are getting saved here at church. This isn't just an idea we're talking about. This is happening to people even right here in this room already. Where they're, they're being placed, not into water, that's just the symbol. They're being placed into the death of Jesus Christ. So it is like in God's sight, they died with Christ. That's what it's like. And then look what it says in verse 4. It says, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you notice that there? Just as Christ was 
raised. I mean, that's a pretty powerful idea, the resurrection of the dead. That a man would die and he wouldn't be mostly dead. He would be all dead. He would be there for three days, you know. And then, boom, he would come back. And the stone would roll away. And people would see him and they would recognize him. Yet there was something different about him. It says, just like that, you can have a new life. You can have the power of the resurrection in your life right now. You can be done with your old ways. And you can be on to your new ways. This is good news. Not of history, but of your life in the present. And so this is point number one. Let's get this down. Jesus died so you can have a new life. That you could live that new life today and every day ever after. That you could be done with your life of sin, living for yourself, and you could move forward in the power of his resurrection, experiencing victory in the present. And that's powerful. Uh, I, I have a memory. I don't even know why I've been thinking about this lately. Maybe because it's my own son is getting older. But I have a memory when I was a boy. One of the things that I remember is kind of like one of the highlight moments. Fortunately, I grew up with a dad that really loved me and cared for me. And I remember one Christmas I opened up a gift. And it was tickets to a Celtics Clippers basketball game. And to me, this was like a mind-blowing revelation. Right? Like I was going to go to a basketball game where Larry Bird was playing. Any other Larry Bird fans? Any other Larry Bird fans? Because us white guys, he was our hope. You know what I mean? <laughs> he was our one and only great hope. Right? I wasn't cool like Magic Johnson. Definitely couldn't jump like Michael Bo- Jordan. But playing with your brain, I knew how to do that. You know? Uh, so I, Larry Bird, he was my hero. He could pass. He could shoot. I wanted to be Larry Bird. When I hit the, when I hit the court at school in the third grade, I was trying to do all the Larry Bird moves. Right? Every once in a while, I, I did one, and I was like, hey, yeah, I'm like Larry Bird. We, got, we, we didn't have a lot of money, so we got, the, we got the seats that were way up at the top. Like, we are in the last row in this, like, ghetto Clippers stadium. You guys know what I'm talking about? And the place is packed, I guess, because Larry Bird is in the house or something. And I'm all the way up in the top row. Like, I'm, I'm like, thinking I'm going to fall over and die. That's how sketchy it is up here. And I'm having a great time with my dad. And the game goes into overtime. And overtime comes down to the last play. And the Celtics are down by two. And I'm saying to my dad, Larry can do it, Dad. Larry can do it, right? And we're just shouting and we're cheering. And they throw the ball in. And Larry Bird catches it at the three-point line with his back to the basket. He jumps in one move. He turns. He shoots. He swishes it. As the buzzer sounds, Celtics win. I go crazy, right? Highest I've ever jumped in my life, I'm sure. Like, like 13 inches or something like that, you know? Just, just shouting. Just people standing there, just shouting. The game's over. We're still cheering. Go to school the next day. I have no voice. Went to the Celtics game last night. It was awesome, right? I go to the court, and I'm ready to embody Larry Bird on the court. Never happened. Never happened. Not once. I mean, he was a hero. He did something I'll never forget. But it never transferred to my life. Didn't change me one little bit. I never became Larry Bird. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Jesus did something for you that can transfer to your life. You can be like Jesus Christ. You can be dead to your old life. The sin that has defined you can stop at a certain point and no longer be you anymore. And then you can walk in victory because Jesus Christ died and rose again. See, there's no hero that then empowers you to be like him. The only one is Jesus Christ. See, and I'm afraid that the gospel is just like some historical event rather than the powerful reality of our present lives. Do you know what it's like to be dead to your old self and to walk in newness of life? Just as Christ rose from the dead, it says, you go and walk in newness of life. Turn with me to the book of Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I mean, these are famous passages that I'm taking you tonight because they're gospel passages. And hopefully this is a verse that resonates with your heart if you've heard it before. If not, what a pleasure to be introduced to this idea right here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It says this, 
I have been crucified with Christ. When I put my faith in the fact that Jesus died for me and rose again, it's like I went through it with him, it says. I have been crucified with Christ to the point where it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I still got the same body, same personality, but this life I'm now living in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, I, I, mean, I am no longer just me anymore at the moment I meet Jesus Christ. He now lives in me and through me, and I live this life where I'm loved by Jesus Christ, where I see his suffering, his sacrifice on my behalf, and I'm empowered to go live in that same exact way. As Christians today, by and large, we can say we way underestimate the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hear so many people saying things like, well, I'm just a sinner. I'm just one beggar looking for bread, trying to tell other beggars where to get it. We say stuff like that all the time. And sometimes I just want to shout, are you just as Christ risen from the dead? See, it's more than just a sinner now, see. We can all say amen to the fact that we're sinners. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? But who can say amen to the fact that Christ now lives in me? Not, I'm not just a sinner anymore. I'm a saved person. But the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has now been intertwined to where that is my identity, to where I am a Christian person. And I define myself more with Christ and my faith in him than I do with my old life of sin. Is that how we think about ourselves? Is that the gospel that we're ready to preach to our children? See, this kind of gospel demands evidence. That's why it's going to be hard for some people to really accept this. Because if you're going to say that, wow, Jesus Christ, the power to rise from the dead, the victory over the grave, where you can be dead and then have life. See, that's the kind of power maybe some people who call themselves Christians, in fact, maybe some of us here tonight, we can't relate to that kind of power in our lives. And so we don't really understand it. And so we say, I don't really know if that's the gospel message because I've never really experienced that power in your life. Trust me, my friend, you don't want to judge what a Christian is by your own personal experience. You want to judge what a Christian is by the words of God-inspired Scripture. And it says that when you become a Christian, you're crucified with Christ, your old life is over, and a new life has come, and Christ now lives in you. So we should be able to see you walking in newness of life where there's a passion for the things of God and where we can live out uh, not a perfection but at least a direction of righteousness as we seek God with all of our hearts. And I hope that you know this. I hope that this death and resurrection of Christ is something that you personally have been placed into. We have so many people today calling themselves Christians, and yet we have so few people who are actually in Christ. See? And they actually have the power of his death and resurrection applied to their life. Man, if the, you know the good news of Jesus, I hope that's something you experience every single day as you're able to say no to sin and yes, to living for Jesus Christ with all of your heart. Go back to our text, Matthew 16. Uh, that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is going to say it throughout the gospel of Matthew until he goes and he does it. He dies on the cross and, and he rises again. And that can happen to you here tonight if it hasn't yet. And if it has, well, praise the Lord that you have a new life, that you can wake up tomorrow morning and no matter how you feel and no matter what you're thinking about, you can remind yourself that I have good news, that I can walk in newness of life today and you can live by faith in the Son of God. But let's get more into this response from Peter. First time Peter really hears this gospel explicitly stated to him here in Matthew in verse 21. Now Peter, now notice how nice Peter is. Notice it says, Peter took him aside. He didn't want to rebuke Jesus in front of the other guys, right? Didn't want to make Jesus look bad in front of the bros, right? How generous, Peter. So he took him aside to rebuke him privately, right? And he says, hey, hey, Messiah, Christ, right? Remember how I called you that? Far be it from you, Lord, 
you're not going to do this suffering, dying thing. I don't see that in your future. Now, we, we need to learn something from what Jesus says to Peter in response here. Okay? He says, get behind me, Satan. That should get your attention when Jesus is calling one of his disciples Satan. He's upset by what Peter just said. And he says, you are a hindrance to me. Now, this is absolutely fascinating to me. I, if you're able to know the Greek language, you get a little bit of an insight here. Because we talked about how there was a wordplay. He said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. We talked about that on Sunday. Because the word, the name Peter is Petros, rock. And so he says, you're Petros, and on this Petra, it, it, it's stone. It, it's a wordplay he's doing there. So just a few verses ago, he was saying, you're the rock, uh, uh, the revelation of who I am coming through your mouth. You're the rock that I'm going to build the church on is what it seems. And now he says, you're a hindrance to me. You know what the word really means? You're a stumbling block to me. See? I mean, I mean that's, that's the idea here. It's a classic Greek word that shows up throughout the New Testament, and it means a stumbling block. Wait a minute, one minute he's the rock, and now he's a stumbling block that is tripping Jesus up. What's the difference? Well, one minute he was for the gospel, and now, unfortunately, he's speaking against the gospel. And, and what he doesn't even realize here is that he is playing into Satan's plan to tempt Jesus Christ. I mean, I think this is a very literal reference when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I think what Jesus is remembering when he hears Peter saying, you don't have to die. You're the Messiah. You're the ruler of all things. You have all authority. You can play this out however you want. What Jesus hears, oh, that sounds like what Satan was tempting me with. See? I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when Jesus was down here as a man and he put on skin so that he could live the perfect life in our place and he could substitute himself for us on the cross and be the sacrifice for our sin. The great temptation that Jesus had, he experienced all forms of temptation, just like us, yet without giving in to any of them. But the greatest temptation he had was to just go straight for his glory without the suffering. That was a real temptation that Jesus Christ agonized through that he suffered through, that he felt in his human body. And here's Peter saying, you're the Messiah. You can play this out however you want. You don't have to suffer and die. And Jesus hears Satan speaking to him. Look at Matthew chapter 4 where Satan did tempt him, and you'll see how similar it is to what Peter is saying. Satan is basically offering Jesus all the authority, all of the glory, without any of the suffering or death on a cross. And you've got to see that Jesus Christ himself, the sinless, perfect, holy, anointed one, this was a legitimate temptation on his heart. Remember, Satan tempts Jesus uh, in the wilderness. He's been there 40 days and 40 nights with no food, right? And so here comes Satan now, three different temptations. How did Jesus respond to every temptation of Satan? How did he respond? Shout it out if you know. With Scripture. He answers him. Even when Satan is twisting Scripture, Jesus answers him back using Scripture properly. And so finally, the third one, Satan pulls out his big gun, his trifecta. This is the one. Last swing before you strike out here, Satan. Look at verse 8. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. You see the offer there? No death, no suffering, no bearing the sins of the world, straight glory over the earth. We can skip all of the hard things you're going to have to go through, Jesus, and we can get straight to the payoff. That's a legitimate temptation for Jesus Christ. And Jesus responds, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Just what he said to Peter. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that was it. The devil had nothing left. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan, he thinks that he can get to Jesus. And Satan is no slouch at causing people to sin. And he thinks he can get to Jesus by saying, hey, what about the suffering you're going to have to do? I'll give you the glory straight up. You don't have to go and die on that cross. 
Turn with me to Matthew 26. Turn with me to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you'll see here this temptation surfacing for Jesus Christ once again. This idea that Peter suggests that Jesus could get all of the glory without any of the suffering. And you'll see it weighing heavy on Jesus' heart. Now, I have had the privilege in my life to go on a trip to the nation of Israel. Has anybody else here been to the the Holy Land uh, of Israel? If you ever get a chance, it's an expensive trip. It's all, there's always turbulence and conflict going on in the Middle East. But if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, I would strongly encourage you to go. I was kind of like, yeah, I've got the Bible. I don't really need to go places. I've got the inspired word of God. I was kind of like that, you know. And then I went and I was like, wow, this is awesome. It's, I can see all these places I've read about. And there they are right in front of me. And it was an amazing trip that helped me love the Bible even more. And by far and away, my favorite place that I got to go to, I got to go to the temple and the Sea of Galilee and all kinds of cool places. But my favorite was the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's a picture of what it looks like right here. I think we have a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, that it's just a bunch of olive trees really is what it is. Maybe you've heard of the Mount of Olives. It's just this, this hill, this mountain right outside of the city of Jerusalem. And I know when you look at that clump right there in the middle of that picture, you think, oh, that's a bunch of trees together. That's one big fat olive tree. Okay? And olive trees, I don't know if you've ever been around trees like this, but they're just so wide and they just look wrinkled and they just look old. And they told me that some of these trees had been there for a thousand years. They even suggested, and I thought they were just telling me this because I was a tourist, but, I, but that some of these trees were there when Jesus was there. But the Garden of Gethsemane became a great place. Here's the story. Let's read it together. Uh, it, I will never forget seeing that olive tree because here's what happens. In the same garden, Jesus Christ went with them to a place called Gethsemane. There's the picture. Consider it, though, at nighttime. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Feel the agony here in Jesus Christ. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I feel like I'm going to die. I'm overwhelmed. This is Matthew 26, verse 38. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He says, remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face. Now, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah falling on his face. And he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I mean, do you feel the pressure, the agony there in the heart of Jesus Christ? I mean, he's talking about this cup. This is the cup of God's wrath that is going to be poured out on him for the sins of mankind. This is the burden of bearing your sin, of the Son being separated from the Father, and the Father judging the Son for all of our sins. And he feels this cup, this burden, this cup of wrath that he's going to have to drink. And he says, if it's possible, is there another way out I mean, how does that make you think about the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sin when the Messiah, the Lord, is asking, is there another way I can save these people? Is there another way we can do this? But I'm submitted to your will. I'm ready to do whatever you've told me to do. And then the story here goes on, and he came to the disciples, and of course he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? One hour? You couldn't even pray that long? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And in Luke 23, it says that he was sweating because he was in so much agony, is the word that it uses in the Gospel of Luke. That he was in so much turmoil and suffering about bearing your sin and my sin. That he was sweating like great drops of blood. And he was crying out. There's a way this cup could pass. 
Now, I love this picture. I love going there because I've read this story many times. But then you're there, and you can kind of picture Jesus on his face begging God if there's another way. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And you see these olive trees all around you. And you start to think, what is the point of an olive tree, right? And you think about the EVOO is the first thing that comes to my mind, right? Extra virgin olive oil, right? What do we do with olives? We press them. We just grind them down, right? With a big old stone, little olive, we just grind it down. We turn it into oil, see? Olive oil. We use it on food. We use it for anointing purposes. There's all kinds of different purposes. Everybody here knows what olive oil is through the pressing of the olive. And I'm in this garden, and I see Jesus getting pressed for me. See, he's experiencing what it's like to be judged by God and to bear the guilt of my sin. And it's pressing him. So that Luke says he's sweating like drops of blood, like it's affecting his physical body. His spirit is in agony, and he's crying out to God. This is why he came. I came to die. I came to die. I came to die. We looked at him saying it, and now it comes to the moment, and what does he say? Father, if there's another way, I'm open to it. Do you realize how much Jesus Christ suffered for you? On that cross, if that has become old news to you, see, how cruel for someone to take your punishment and for you to get complacent about it. He's being pressed like an olive. That's the analogy here. And this is just the beginning. This is just like the turmoil within before we even get to the suffering. Because he's about to get arrested. And then he's going to get beaten and his back's going to get whipped open, and they're going to put a crown of thorns on his head that they're going to beat into his skull. And then the worst thing of all is they're going to put him on a cross. Now, I don't know what you've heard about the cross. I mean, it's like the guillotine. It's like the electric chair. It's like the firing squad. It's a way of execution, but the cross is special because it's a way to torture you before we execute you because your back is now ripped open. It's exposed you got it's just open skin and the skin's gone there's flesh there there's blood there and we put you up we nail you with your hands and feet up against a piece of wood from the way i understand it is it's as your body kind of hangs it's hard to breathe so you have to lift yourself up and the only way you can lift yourself is by basically using the nails that is holding your skin into this wood and you lift yourself up to breathe. And every time you lift yourself up to get another gasp of air, your back that's ripped open and exposed is rubbing up against the wood of the cross. And that's not even anything either. Because then what happens is the father who you've had a perfect relationship with for all of eternity, see, God in heaven that you were one with before there was even time, he turns his back on you and judges you. He makes you drink the cup of wrath for sin. And you're separated and you cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that was the greatest pain of all. The separation from the father that the son had never experienced before or since. And he gave up his spirit willingly because it was God's will that's what jesus christ went through for you that was his mission he came here for he told everybody that was his mission when nobody understood it his closest ally who couldn't identify him as the christ even told him don't go through with this plan and jesus christ did go through with the plan and he died for you he died so you could be saved of your sin. And, and turn with me to Luke 23. Look at the account of Jesus dying here in Luke chapter 23. Because there's these two other guys that are killed. Uh, they're executed, uh, crucified. One on either side. And all uh, the gospel accounts are clear on this. Two criminals. And when Jesus dies, it's a terrible scene. I mean, uh, we, don't, we, don't, we can't really relate to public execution. 
That's not something that's a part of our regularly scheduled life here in America, but that's the way it was. I mean, these crosses, people dying on these crosses was, was common. But when Jesus died, it was especially brutal because the crowd mocked him as he was dying, wagging their heads and saying, he saved others, he cannot save him. Isn't that the ultimate of ironies? He is dying to save others. He could save himself. They're mocking him for the exact opposite of what he is doing. And it's very clear that the criminals on either side of him were also mocking him. And then it says this in Luke chapter 23. Look with me at verse 39. As we get into the account, all of a sudden something changes. And it says one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ, dude? You're the Messiah. You shouldn't be dying on a cross. Save yourself. And then I love this part. And us, by the way. right? I mean, just throw that in, right? I mean, here's the common mindset, okay? The fact that the Messiah would die w- was not expected by the Jewish people of the day, as you can see. You're the Christ. You should save yourself. This shouldn't happen to you. They don't get what Jesus came to do. The other, though, the other criminal now, coming from the other side of Jesus, rebukes him. And he says, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, hey, don't you realize we're going to die right now? And we indeed justly, like we deserve to die, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, referring to Jesus right here, he has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now we have it that this guy was saying the same thing as the other criminal at the start of this crucifixion. But now all of a sudden, he changes his mind. Right there in a moment, he changes his mind about Jesus Christ. And he says, don't you realize we're going to die and we deserve to because we did wrong, but he hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus, see, I believe you're the Messiah even though you're going to die, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in, where does he say he's going? Paradise. Point number two, let's put it down like this. Jesus went through hell so you could go to paradise. Jesus went through hell so you could enjoy eternal life, both now that you could walk in the power of his resurrection But especially now, you have no fear of death, no fear of condemnation. You will never have to drink the cup of God's wrath. You will never be separated from the Father again. Because Jesus Christ, he already paid it all for you, see? See, that's good news. And I wanted to describe it tonight in vivid detail because if you've stopped feeling how good that is, if you've stopped remembering what Christ has done for you, if the good news has become old news to you, then that might be the worst sin of all. To have someone die for you and then to take it for granted. Like, yeah, that's what they should have done. Or, yeah, I've kind of gotten used to the fact that I should be in hell, but, but he experienced the judgment for me. How dare any of us lose the power of the good news or forget the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Look at this with me. It makes it very clear what our response to be. When we consider the mercies of God, when we consider that Jesus came uh, to die, that was his mission. As soon as people knew who he was, he started telling them, I'm here to die, and nobody understood it. His right-hand man, the guy that's going to go preach the first sermon of the church says, you sh- that, that should never happen to you. Far be it from you, Lord, that you should die. Nobody understands what Jesus went through. But yet he went through it for us. And what is our response? When you consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf, what should you do in response? Romans chapter 12, verse 1 summarizes it very well. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Another way you could translate that, you could see maybe the footnote there at the bottom of your Bible. It says, or your rational service. The idea there is, here's here's the response, your spiritual worship. 
the only logical response, basically. Like the only thing that it could make sense to do when considering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf is to offer your life as a sacrifice back up into him. And it says, do not be conformed here. Moving on to verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Stop thinking like everybody else that your life is about you. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. That's what Jesus did. He said, not as I will, but as you will. He put aside his own feelings, his own experiences, and he said, I'm here to do what God has told me to do. And it says you should be able to discern that too. The sacrifice of Jesus means something to you. Well, then you should seek out to do what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I mean, Jesus paid it all. How does it go? All to him I owe. Well, now we're not trying to work off our salvation. We're not trying to. We're not trying to pay him back, right? But, uh, but when I consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I want to give him my entire life. Oh, man, we're having church three nights this week, everybody. Come out. I've been saying that to a lot of people. Hey, we got three nights at church, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Come and join us. Right? People are looking at me like, what are you talking about, man? Church in the middle of the week? It's crazy, man. It's crazy. Maybe, I, uh, maybe I'll be there Thursday. Maybe. That's, I mean, got a lot of that response, right? I'm saying, hey, let's go see revival in our lifetime. Let's turn the town of Huntington Beach upside down. People are looking at me like, I, I don't know about that, man. That seems like a lot to ask. Going to get my family out there on a weeknight? Then you're going to say, let's go out with the ice cream truck. Oh, boy, when does it end with you, man? Now watch, you want us to come clean the church at 9 o'clock on a Saturday? Are you kidding me? thought we were done with this set-up, tear-down stuff. I thought that's why we got this building, right? See, it all, it, some people, it always seems like, what, I have to do one more thing? I have to do one more thing? I have to do one more thing? Sure glad Jesus didn't think that way about you. Sure glad Jesus Christ was all in. 100%. He never thought of his own comfort. He thought about you all the way to the end. And the only response, if you really understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf, see, the only logical response is not to try to earn your salvation. No, you realize you could never do that. You could never go through what Jesus went through. No, but you could offer your life to him as a free will offering. And you could say, I'm going to follow your example, Jesus Christ, by your power, by the power of your death to stop sinning and your resurrection to live a new life. I, too, am going to say no to my will and yes to God's will for my life. I will do that with you, Jesus Christ. I will follow you. I will offer my life as a sacrifice. Maybe the most famous movie of World War II is Saving Private Ryan. Anybody ever seen that movie, right? A lot of people really like that movie because it seems to depict how brutal it was. And it gives us a sense when we watch that movie, it gives us a sense of how heroic and how good it was that we did win World War II. There's a part of that movie I really don't like. In fact, it bothers me, right? It's at the end, right? I mean, they all were, like, all these guys die throughout the movie. So this one guy, this Private Ryan guy, so that he can be saved, right? And all these other guys are dying, and this one guy gets to go home. And then Tom Hanks, right, the hero of the movie, he's dying right at the end, and he grabs Private Ryan, and he pulls him forward, and he says two words that I absolutely hate with all of my heart. He says, earn this. You can't earn the sacrifice of somebody dying for you. You can't ever possibly hope to live up to somebody offering their entire life for your soul? I just feel like the movie, it, I'm getting what they're trying to say, and they lose me right there. I can't pay somebody back for saving me from my sin. But here's what I can do. I can offer my life back to him. I can't earn it, but I can go and give my life away. Just like Jesus Christ gave his life for me, I can now go give my life for him and to serve other people in his name. Oh, man, what a burden to feel like. 
If anybody here feels like you have to try to be a good person to earn your own salvation, that's why you're here at church, because you're trying to score points somehow to get you somewhere. Man, there was only one person who could earn your salvation, and you could never, ever go through what he went through for you. The only thing that you could do is be so overwhelmed with gratitude, so thankful, so filled with good news inside of you that you could say, I want to give you my life back, and I offer everything that I am, and if there's some small way that you could use me to shine the light of the glory of what you've done for me, Jesus, then I'm all in. Sign me up. How many nights a week can we have church here in this building, see? How many people can tell, I tell about Jesus Christ? You got toilets in here that need to be cleaned? Oh, wow. Let's do it. Sign me up. I'm all in. That's the idea we should have if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ. I got news for you guys. The good news, it's still good. And it's good for you today, right now in your life. You got the power to walk in newness of life when you walk out of these doors tonight. You got someone who suffered and died so that you could live. He went through hell, and what do you get? Paradise. God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. And that we could just look tonight for a brief time at what he has done for us, and we could remind ourselves of what the gospel is, that he's going to die on the cross for our sins, that he's going to rise again on the third day. And God, Jesus was saying that before it even happened, that that was his mission. And God, I pray that now that it's been 2,000 years, let it not be old to us. Maybe some of us have heard sermons like this before. God, please forgive us for getting complacent about the suffering of Jesus for us on the cross. Please forgive us, forgive us for forgetting the power that we have now to walk out of here in newness of life. I pray that the good news will be so good to us every day that we'll always be reminding ourselves of Jesus Christ and what he has done. God, that we will be confident that you have heard our prayer as we cry out to you, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And that we'll know the only way we're ever going to reach paradise is because Jesus Christ went through hell for us. God, let us honor his sacrifice for us by sacrificing our own life willingly, offering it up to him and saying, I'm here to serve you, Jesus Christ. I give my life completely to you. We pray this in his name. Thank you.